Welcome to Flight Safety Detectives. Here, hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation experts, talk about all things aviation safety. This podcast is brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-241-7891. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up on the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, hello, John. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Uh, Today, we have a little bit of a different attire. Uh, You are the more casual hat freak with, uh, of course, the Flight Safety Detectives hat. I, of course, have dressed up for the occasion um, by default because I actually had to do some work today and uh, appear in court, you know, via Zoom. So I had to at least look appropriate. It's a good thing they aren't looking below my desk because that's a different story. But uh, that is a different story for a different time. So good to see you, my friend, as always. And I know that uh, we've both been traveling. I just got back from another long road trip, and I know you were on the road as well. Yeah, things don't change. Although this time I'm, I'm working from home, so it's, uh, it's casual day. Yeah, well, that's good to know. Um, and as we come into a holiday season, uh, I intend to be a little more casual, try and stay home and get caught up on a lot of stuff that I'm behind on. But uh, I'll tell you, John, I'm really concerned. The accidents are not slowing down. Um, it's causing both of us to be on the road and, um, and I'm not sure what we're going to do about it. I've had a number of discussions with some folks, insurance people recently and between accidents. And then of course, uh, the tragic, uh, circumstances in the middle of the country due to storms. Um, of course our hearts go out to those folks as, as well, because, uh, they are suffering at the worst possible time having lost, uh, houses, their possessions, uh, and in some cases, even loved ones, family members, friends. Um, but I saw pictures of the uh, of some of the airports that were affected. And when you see all those airplanes stacked on top of each other, you know that the insurance companies are just going nuts with the fact that there's going to be unbelievable amount of claims for these damaged aircraft. Yeah, it's just been from the First off, from the families and of all these problems, uh, you got to feel for them. But then you you look at the accident rate, and then the natural the natural phenomenons which have been destroying property like crazy. It's just, I mean, it's just unbelievable what's going on. Yeah, it sure is. The level and of stupidity, the level of stupidity we have of pilots today. You go down the accident and incident reports, it's just unbelievable what's yeah. going on. They all forgotten how to fly, but they think they're all ace of the base. I mean, they're out there with taxiing over, uh, hitting runway lights and hitting, <laughs> hitting a fuel pump. Yeah. pump. I mean, what, what, what's people thinking? I, I don't know. And we're going to be uh, talking about some accidents uh, that have happened um, that we'll be following, but they recently happened, including a very good friend of mine and yours. Um, so we'll uh, we'll touch on that, and then we're going to dissect an accident that again brings home the point that you always end our show with, with regard to doing a pre-flight inspection of the aircraft. But before we get into that, um, I know that you want to get through our sponsors and in uh, their messages, and then uh, we'll just start ramming home some of these points because as we get into this holiday flying season, just like you and I talked about with, uh, with flying around Thanksgiving, we had a rash of accidents. Now we're coming into the Christmas, New Year's holiday. And of course, people are commuting to uh, go see loved ones and friends and things like that. And if, if that period of time is anything like the last two weeks uh, prior to us taping this show, you and I are going to not only be busy, but it's going to be really detrimental to uh, general aviation and general aviation safety. Oh, it is just unbelievable. All right. So everybody, I'd like to remind you that this program is brought to you by 
PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association. And anybody that's got an interest in any of the maintenance of aircraft, becoming a mechanic even, just uh, log on to PAMA.org and uh, put your questions forward. We'll answer them. And also, Avemco Insurance is our major sponsor. Uh, they have been around since the early 60s. I think it's actually 1960 or 61. And uh, I can tell you, they're very professional people to deal with. I've listened to them at, at places like Oshkosh, talk to them all the time. They love aviation. They love to talk aviation. So if you need insurance, whether it be hull insurance, personal liability insurance, any kind of insurance around general aviation, give them a call, 888 879-0389. Just call them up. They'll answer all your insurance questions. Uh, like I said, they're very good, uh, easy to talk to people, very professional in their organization. They even have a flight simulator in their own facility so that they can, uh, those with that uh, are pilots or those that uh, maybe just want to have fun can go fly the simulator. So yeah. great. And they're, they're probably very busy now because of the general aviation piece of this accident rate that's, that's just out of control. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's scary, John. And, and we keep talking about it. We keep harping on it with regard to what we see every week and the fact that uh, both of our workloads continue, uh, continually escalate. And again, like I said, I was just on the road on an accident. Um, you and I were together uh, following up on some accidents and that kind of stuff. And, uh, and we had an accident just as I got back from uh, a road trip, there was a, uh, a Piper PA 46500 turboprop um, being flown by an orthopedic surgeon uh, commuting back from work. He worked in Wyoming, was uh, living in steamboat and on his way back into his home airport, lousy weather at night, ended up um, hitting the top of a, a mountain between him and the airport. Um, of course, that's always a concern because you're challenging mother nature at night, single engine in the rocks. But now you got to look at pilot experience. This airplane, from what I understand, this was a newer airplane. He had just recently purchased it. So he probably didn't have a lot of experience, especially with some of the automation. And that may become a distraction and time consuming and trying to figure that out while he's trying to navigate and maneuver uh, in mountainous terrain at night. So, of course, that's going to be uh, a focal point for the investigators. Um, of course, then not only did that accident happen, but then there was a another accident in your neck of the woods, not too far from you, right. involving a cargo hauler and a Swearingen Metroliner. Again, trying to get into the airport, uh, dark and stormy night, if you will. The weather was, uh, was not the, the best looks like it was more of a dive and drive type approach that kept him high. He was trying to dive towards the runway, ended up short in a bunch of trees. Um, pilot experience um, with that particular airplane and this pilot, he was a younger pilot. So, of course, experience uh, not only in the cargo operation, but, you know, just in that airplane. That could be a handful of airplane if, uh, if you're not really used to it. So um, that, again, happened on the heels of, uh, of this steamboat accident. And then of course, there's some video floating around of a recent uh, helicopter accident that occurred down in New Orleans. Um, the airplane or the helicopter was flying and uh, uh, was being flown by a very seasoned pilot. Um, unfortunately, it was in uh, low fog, it was not VMC. And as he was approaching a bridge, apparently struck some sort of cable, whether it was a power line cable or even part of the bridge, not really sure. But the video shows the helicopter coming in and crashing on the highway in front of a, a vehicle, nose down with the uh, main rotor system separated. And again, we harp on this all the time. And that is why you don't challenge mother nature because mother nature typically wins. And in this case, where the video is so absolutely clear, you can see how thick that fog was, why anybody would be operating a, uh, an aircraft, you know, trying to follow the highway or trying to maintain VFR in IMC conditions. I just don't 
know what is going on with this decision making. Well, and then, say, I'm sorry. Most of the accents we're looking at are weather related. Yeah. And, and yeah. it gets down to that planning and before you take off. Yeah. Well, the last one, the last accident I want to talk about uh, in, in briefly before we get into the accident we're going to dissect is you and I lost a, a good friend. Um, I know Charlie Schneider, who is the uh, CEO of My Go Flight, and many of you who are listening or watching this show probably have some sort of device that, uh, that My Go Flight either invented or at least sold and, and you put in your aircraft and use, whether it's an iPad holder or one of the other many items that you can buy from My Go Flight. You've seen Charlie and his sidekick, uh, Dominic, um, at a lot of the trade shows, whether it's Oshkosh, Sun and Fun, NBAA, or whatever. Um, Charlie was uh, a wealth of knowledge, just a, a, a super guy to talk to. He, uh, he definitely loved talking general aviation and general aviation safety. He contributed a lot. And unfortunately, he was killed in his aircraft, the Cirrus SR-22, uh, during some sort of dem demonstration flight at Knoxville, Tennessee. And um, it, it's just heartbreaking that, again, here we have a guy who has always been on the, the positive side of safety and trying to contribute to enhancing aviation and aviation safety. And uh, he lost his life. Um, I know people say, well, he's doing what he loved to do, but it, it goes well beyond that, especially because that is not a comfort for his family. Um, the fact is, is that he was a, just a superior individual, prince of a guy, and, um, and, and he, he really did do things in the best interest of aviation and uh, was a, a great visionary from the general aviation side of the house. Um, I know that the NTSB has been out there. Um, it was uh, tragic. I mean, he was operating in the uh, traffic pattern at Knoxville. And um, something happened as he was turning base to final, apparently. And uh, most likely, it, it could focus on wake turbulence because he was turning in behind an A320 Airbus going into uh, the runway that he was landing on. Um, there were some reports that the airplane had gone inverted. There is uh, some indications that the, uh, the airplane was trailing the ballistic parachute. Now, whether or not that, uh, you know, that came out um, in flight because someone tried to pull the parachute or some other uh, issue uh, arose, that'll be up to the investigators who are investigating. But uh, the aircraft hit the ground short of the runway, exploded and burned. Unfortunately, Charlie did survive the, uh, the initial part of the accident but uh, succumbed to his injuries at the hospital. There was a passenger on board who did uh, receive burns as well, but uh, they apparently aren't life-threatening. So we're going to be following this because uh, it, it is close to home. And uh, this time of year, it's heartbreaking for not only his family, but uh, I, I've known these guys for a long time. They're not that far down the street. I've done a lot with Charlie and, and Dominic and, and the rest of the My Go Flight team. Uh, over the years, and um, and because of that uh, that relationship, I'll be following it quite closely, and and we'll end up dissecting some of the elements of that accident as we get more information. But uh, it is uh, it is for us um, heartbreaking because you know accidents we we talk about them all the time, John. You and I live them. That's all part of our normal life. But when it hits this close to home, it hurts a little more. Yeah. And when you when I first heard about it, I was thinking about the the time I spent with him at NBAA playing with his uh, toy. Yeah, yep. his heads up display. We just saw, him, you know, three or four weeks ago, and uh, and actually um, he was uh, chiding me a little bit because forever he's been trying to get me in the airplane to fly his HUD. Um, they've developed a HUD for general aviation airplanes, and he's been every every time I see him or talk to him, it's like, when are we going to go fly? When are we going to go fly? And we had uh, and we had made an agreement that as soon as my travel calmed down, which is typically over the holiday, we were going to try and get together so I could go fly the HUD. And I, um, I was impressed with that. Yeah. No, it's it's an impressive unit. Absolutely. 
Yeah, so, I'm really uh, quite pleased with it. Yeah. Well, the accident that we're going to dissect today, John, um, the final report recently came out and has been published. And, and I will give credit to the National Transportation Safety Board, which you, you and our listeners and viewers know that I'm on them all the time. But in this particular instance, they actually did a very good job with this investigation. And uh, it was the investigation of a Beach Duke. Uh, uh, a BE-60 that was being flown by a private pilot. He was the owner of the aircraft, but he was a dentist. And as soon as you stay doctor in airplanes, you start to build these connotations um, with regard to doctors operating aircraft. Um, the, the instances of this particular uh, accident are many because, uh, again, you end our show all the time with regard to conducting a thorough pre-flight inspection. And this was one of these testimonial type accidents to what you've been talking about, where the pilot failed to do not only a thorough pre-flight, he didn't do a pre-flight at all. And uh, it started out with the fact that he apparently uses the airplane to commute between Heber City, Utah and Fullerton, California, he typically goes out at the beginning of the week comes back towards the end of the week. He does have a hangar and uh, the safety board was able to capture uh, some of the activities of this pilot with this aircraft on surveillance video at the airport. And without going into a, a lot of detail so we can talk about some of the other aspects, this pilot was having some issues with the airplane. His hangar mate next door was trying to help him correct the situation with uh, a landing light and a continually popping circuit breaker. Apparently they possibly got that, that issue fixed. The pilot then taxied the airplane over, got fuel. They went out and did a run up with, uh, with the airplane, I guess, to, to verify or validate that they did get the uh, landing light and the uh, circuit breaker issue checked, push the airplane back into the hangar. Um, and then there was a sequence of events where the pilot was getting ready to depart. He was a bit in a hurry and uh, they pushed the airplane out of the hangar. But according to witnesses and, and the surveillance video, there was no pre-flight done after the airplane came out of the hangar. Um, it was, and, and I hate to say it, but it's one of those times where it's, you know, kick the tires, light the fire and let's get out of here. And that's apparently what occurred. Um, surveillance video that was captured and uh, provided to the NTSB shows the airplane coming out of the hangar on two different dates. And the focal point was the elevator and the position of the elevator on these two different uh, days and two different flights. Because uh, during the course of takeoff on the accident flight, the airplane went down the runway at about, to about 1300 feet, went up and then actually started a left uncontrolled roll. And it, it too, the accident flight was captured on surveillance video and there are snapshots of it that were utilized by the NTSB and they do appear on Catherine's report where a lot of this factual information from the board is presented. And um, it was a very thorough investigation by the board. They actually went beyond uh, just the obvious and uh, actually looked at, uh, of course, the possibility of a locked flight control, which this was. And that lock flight control came from not only a gust lock, which, you know, many airplanes, if not all airplanes have, but this one, unfortunately, did not have a beach approved flight control lock, gust lock. It was a homemade manufactured different type of gust lock. And unfortunately, because the pilot failed to do a pre-flight and it's evident that apparently he failed to do any kind of flight control during a run-up, if he in fact did a run-up, um, he would have noticed that the, the gust lock was still installed, but apparently he didn't do it and um, started his takeoff roll and only found out that he had a problem once the airplane got airborne. And, um, and there was a, a great investigation done with uh, looking at an exemplar uh, BE-60, Beach Duke, with a gust lock installed in the position of the elevator versus not having a gust lock installed, what the relaxed position is 
of the elevator, which when you don't have a gust lock and because of the uh, weight of the uh, flight control, it's typically in a full um, uh, down position. That is the elevator is trailing edge down with the gust lock installed. Um, it puts it at a five degree trailing edge up. And so of course the board looked at all of these aspects and then did a, a, a performance study to determine what position that elevator had to be in. And then when they took close-up snapshots of the surveillance video that they, uh, they utilized, it became very evident. And I, I just, I mean, you have a 380 hour total flight time pilot who's flown this airplane about 87 hours. Um, you don't just get in the airplane and do what this pilot did with a, a many of uh, assumptions and that is well i you know the airplane was in the hangar it, it's ready to go i'm not going to do a pre-flight i don't have to do a pre-flight because it's those little things that come back to haunt you and bite you and in this case it killed him you know he's he flew 26.8 hours in the last 30 days that's a lot of flying yeah it's just about flying every day or multiple hours in a very short period of time Right. He should have been, he should have been on his game, but also he put this, this jury rigged uh, flight control system on the airplane. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's a case of memory failing him. Do you forget that, that he put it in because the airplane had been moving around all morning, you know, out of the hangar and doing some testing and then down to the fuel farm out to the run up. So yeah. and so just forgot that he had not un, un, disconnected it. You know, and in the airplane, he was flying at dusk, you know, whether it, visually something didn't catch his eye, if, you know, maybe it happened where he pulled the airplane out in the middle of the day, maybe he would have seen something that reminded him, oh man, I got the gust lock in, you know, we could speculate all day long. The fact is, is that you and I talk about this on a regular basis and I don't care who you are, what kind of experience you have, what kind of airplane you fly, how much money you make, it doesn't matter. An accident will happen to anybody. You and I have been in the job. I've investigated pilots that had, you know, two hours all the way to 30,000 hours. It does not matter who you are. You are always susceptible to an accident. If you don't do those things, that, you know, re require you to be a pilot and do a thorough and methodical inspection of the aircraft and be then mentally prepared to fly that aircraft. And I don't care how important you think you are. Uh, I don't care if you're behind schedule. The fact is, is that in this case, it's one of those uh, things where you're distracted, you're trying to get going, you're late, you're running, you're racing the clock, all of these things, one little missed item like this will kill you. And we saw this with the G4 near you that came out of Hanscom where they didn't do a flight control check and they too had the gust locks installed. And there have been a number of other accidents, John, where this isn't anything new. The thing that's new about this accident is that this guy had some jury rig type, you know, gust lock. Now I've seen a multitude of things that pilots have used over the years as a gust lock, whether it's wrapping the, uh, the seatbelt around the control yoke to keep the flight controls from banging back and forth to putting styrofoam or, or uh, sponge rubber in between the horizontal stabilizer and the, um, and the elevator or the rudder and the vertical stab to keep it from banging on the stops um, you know, guys have taken pieces of wood and cut them in circles or blocks and then put an eye bolt through it and then screw it up and, and put them on so that it captures both part of the, uh, the aileron and, and the uh, flap or the elevator and the uh, horizontal stabilizer. I mean, I've seen them. I, you go out to any airport right now, General Aviation Airport, you're going to see some of these Mickey Mouse things. Okay, great. So you wanted to have a gust lock, but you got to remember to take them off. Yeah, I think the big, those Mickey Mouse pieces of wood, the blocks of woods, they're so obvious. I think you won't miss those.
but it's these other ones that you, you can't see, you know. And yeah. And in this case, I mean, again, you have, again, it doesn't matter. Do a pre-flight and then do a flight control check. It's obvious he didn't do either. Right. And, and you know what? There's reasons why we have checklists, right? And, you know, I can, I can, I'm tired of saying it, but I mean, really, you a safe flight begins before you leave your house. Yeah. You know, you, before you leave, wherever you are, the hotel room, wherever you are, that's when the flight, safe flight starts, knowing what's going on. There was a little, little reference in the report uh, about this guy had originally filed an instrument flight plan and then at the last minute because uh, the weather hadn't hit yet i guess uh he dropped it and went with a vfr flight plan so i wonder if he was trying to race us to get out of there before the weather front came through well and and you bring up a good point because these are the kinds of things where you're racing the clock you're putting a lot of self-induced pressure into the equation so now all of a sudden you get distracted. You forget to do things. You choose not to do things. You selectively filter things, believing that you're good to go, ready to go, and that kind of stuff. And the board made a great statement in its report. Um, it says that despite video evidence of the elevator locked in the trailing edge up position before the accident, an examination revealed no evidence of an installed control lock in the cabin. That's typically where the approved control lock would be. Therefore, during the night before the accident, the pilot likely placed an unapproved object between the elevator balance weight and the trailing edge of the horizontal stabilizer to lock the elevator in a trailing edge up position. The loss of control was also due to the pilot's failure to correctly position the elevator before takeoff. Yeah, well, he couldn't. The pilot's friend at the hangar also reported that the pilot was running about an hour late the night before. He was trying to troubleshoot an electrical issue in the airplane that caused the circuit breaker to keep tripping, which may have become a distraction. Really? You better damn well believe it did. And then, of course, uh, they go on to say the pilot had the opportunity to detect his error in not freeing the elevator, both before boarding the airplane and again while in the airplane, either via a control check or detecting an anomalous aft position of the yoke. It's these little things, the insidious things. And in this case, the obvious thing, you know, we all get used to flying an airplane. We all understand that, okay, I mean, when I had my Comanche and flying this arrow and, and other airplanes, I know that, okay, when I'm not flying and I'm taxiing out, the elevator is going to be in a relaxed position. I know what position that is. I know where the control yoke is. So I have not only that mental model, but I, I have the tactile model. And if the if that control yoke is a little closer to you, you go, man, that's a little closer today. Wonder what's going on because I haven't moved my seat in a different position. You know, all of a sudden, those things are the little things that should be clicking in to heighten the awareness or trigger a pilot to go, something's not right here. I've got to check this out. And he should have, the other little one that he could have uh, noticed was how, how quickly the airplane rotated. Yeah. It was 500 feet quicker than normal. Yeah. It auto rotated. basically was auto rotating. And it's like an accident you and I did with a DC-8 in Rancho Cordova, where they had a jammed flight control, the elevator, and in that airplane, you can see it from the flight data recorder. The first officer who was the flying pilot at the time never started the rotation. The airplane started to auto rotate by itself. As soon as it got to 147 knots, which was rotation speed, the nose started to come up because the elevator had already been cocked in the nose up position. Yeah, that's, you know, you, you have to use all your senses when you're flying. You know, it's not, it's not just any one thing. You have to use all your senses sight feel you know sounds yeah and and the other thing with all of this john is you know you as as we just talked about if the airplane starts to auto rotate or is starting to pitch up and you haven't initiated that pitch up or if you're on the yoke and you're trying to pull you don't keep going because at least being close to the ground you pull the power off and use whatever available runway and and overrun is left 
the last thing you want to do is take a sick airplane into the air because bad things happen. And, and again, so, okay, you got the control lock in and you're going to initiate the pull. Well, if there's resistance there and you're still in, you know, on the ground or close proximity, you don't try and keep going. You pull that power off and keep the airplane on the ground or put it back on the ground from a low altitude. You have a higher, <laughs> higher chance of, of surviving any bad thing than taking this airplane into the air. And when you see the video uh, clips uh, of this airplane as it's rolling inverted, it's going to get ugly and you, you have no control. Yeah. I wouldn't take it into the air. I mean, this isn't really a little airport either. So he had plenty. It's Fullerton. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you got a lot of runway out there. Right. So he used up about uh, 15, 1600 feet of it, or maybe even 1700 feet of it uh, before the airplane auto rotated. It, he probably had at least that much more in front of him. Yeah. But, uh, well over 2000 so now the only thing i would do i mean it, again uh, i give credit to the ntsb they did a, a very the investigator did a very good job in running a lot of things to ground uh getting an exemplar looking and comparing and doing a lot of performance which uh i'm glad to see that they did it with this particular accident i wish they would do it with more of the accidents um as you and i are always talking about um but again the things that I would continue to, to, to want to explore to make it even more thorough and methodical is looking at the pilot and talking to other people. It's obvious that his hangar partner knew a lot about him or this friend. Um, yeah, he was in a hurry. Yeah, he was, you know, gung-ho. He was taken off. He was, he was distracted with all these problems. I want to know if that's a repetitive pattern. Is that a systemic problem with this particular pilot? Or was this a one-off on that particular day? Because if this is cement, uh, 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 a, um, you know, a, uh, <laughs> I lost my train of thought, a, um, a chronic problem, or this is his typical personality, that doesn't bode well. Because if this accident didn't happen on this particular day, he was probably bound and determined to be in an accident somewhere in the future. And, and again, a lot of it comes down to attitude. I've been talking to a number of folks. I'm working on some projects right now where we change the culture of a single pilot operation. And changing the culture of a single pilot operation is changing attitudes. That's the changing culture. You can never be too in a hurry to be doing these things because like this accident, you think you've done something and you didn't. You're in a hurry, you're distracted, and it's the little things. And like you were just talking about, you know, that's why we have a checklist. It's a memory gouge just to make sure that I've done everything that I think I, or I believe I've done. Yeah, I see guys have made their own checklist. You can buy a number of checklists, but I don't think they're available for every single airplane that's out there, but you can make one yourself. Go through the yeah. stuff and just make one and add the pieces that you might want you know, yep. additional pieces to it, just memory jargons. But you got to use it. Yeah. It doesn't do you any good if it's sitting in the airplane and you think you got it memorized. Well, there's a couple of things to be said about all of this. One is, you know, I've, I just recently talked to in a little BS session with a couple of, of uh, instructor pilots, and they're talking about what we're seeing coming in today uh, into the ranks of wannabe pilots. And all they want to do is, is get the ticket and get the hell out. And they're not willing to put the work in for it. Yep. It's a lot of work. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of nervousness in the beginning when you get your student pilots and then you start building time. But, you know, there's no substitute for, for butt on the seat while you're building time. And yeah. And, and you use the key phrase there, and that is you got to put the work in. You cannot skate through these things. And, um, and I just talked to a, a young man who's uh, getting ready to take a private pilot check ride. And I, I just started asking him some basic questions going, hey, this is what your examiner is probably going to ask you. And I asked him about logbooks. And I said, prove to me from the logbooks that this airplane is airworthy. He didn't know because he hadn't been instructed by his instructor 
what to look for in these logbooks and how to show that the airplane was airworthy. This is a flight, flight school airplane. So you're looking for annual and hundred hour inspections and things like that. He had no, he had no concept of that because he hadn't been taught that. And I said, you better understand before you go for your check right, because I guarantee the examiner is going to want you to explain to him why this airplane is or is not airworthy. It's the little things, John, you got to put the work in. You got to ask the questions. Even if you're a student, ask the questions. You That's can't fine. just assume. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it, it's no. crazy. And uh, you and I are going to be talking about a lot more of these things in the new year. Um, we have big plans for revamping the show. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm getting more excited about it. Um, we've used basically this year, not only with the podcast, but of course, uh, going with the YouTube channel as some beta to get comments from our viewers and listeners, which we greatly appreciate as we, uh, we come to an end of this year. And, um, and we, we've taken those suggestions and we're incorporating those into, uh, into taking our show to the next level for next year. And um, we're going to have... I'm, I'm happy, John, that you're going to be relieved of the burden of trying to remember Avemco.com and the 800 number that you so often can't remember. <laughs> but um, so focused on getting it out. Yeah, well, we're going to relieve you of that burden and have somebody that has a little more pleasant voice and a kinder and gentler type of delivery to give our listeners and viewers that message. But uh, we're gonna be bringing you some new things. Um, we're gonna change the format a little bit. Uh, we wanna try a variety of new things because this uh, we believe is a dynamic show. So we don't have a problem of, you know, again, we don't script this, we don't format it. We just have a general idea of uh, what we're gonna talk about it, even with these, uh, these accidents that we dissect. I wanna get back to some of the, uh, the issues that we have talked about in the past, but really didn't have time to get into. And I'll tell you a couple of things, John, I've been watching some of the, uh, the recent air disaster shows. I get a lot of emails and, and um, uh, some of it, again, it drives me nuts because a lot of the, a lot of the shows are using just what comes out of the reports. And you and I have been, you know, critical of some of the reports, especially with the 737 MAX, because the report that came out of Indonesia was wrong. Um, they, they manipulated the facts, and I want to get more into those types of discussions. Um, the anniversary, the 24th anniversary of Silk Air, an accident where I spent a lot of time in Indonesia working with the Indonesians on an accident. They came out with a report three years after uh, we worked with an international team and we all agreed before we left Indonesia what the facts, conditions and circumstances were, how the report should be written and what the probable cause was, which we believed was an intentional act, not an accident, only to find out that when the Indonesians released the report, they had manipulated the facts and basically told their own investigators that uh, we are going with a different probable cause that it was a mechanical problem for uh, undetermined reasons rather than um, being an intentional act. And over the years, there were some memos that were released after they were found that were um, solicited in-house or at least uh, circulated in-house in, in the NTSC, which is the, NT, uh, the Indonesian's version of the NTSB, saying that they didn't wanna blame the pilots because they didn't want to put a fear factor into the Indonesian people flying on airplanes. That was a very telling story that did come out by Jeff Thomas, who is a friend of our show. And, um, and so again, we know the backstories and when people are, you know, <laughs> talking about us and the fact that we're trying to protect a Boeing or somebody else, no, we're not. We just know the way the system works. And the Indonesians did the same thing with the MAX, where they manipulated the facts. I understand that Boeing's got problems. I understand that the FAA has got problems. I understand that uh, you know, a lot of issues um, are, are um, inherent to a lot of the regulators around the world and investigative authorities. We see that politics creeps into these types of accidents. 
but you and I use the Indonesian's own report on the 737 MAX, their own facts, to show that they had manipulated them in the wrong direction and that they really didn't get to the true cause of that particular accident. So I wanna take this into the new year, really dissect some of these accidents because I love the conversation. I love the feedback from people when, uh, when we say something or talk about it, hey, we may not always be right, but we're never wrong most of the time. Yeah. But I, I think that it, this, is, this is good fodder for discussion. And I, you know, I don't expect everybody to agree with you, me, and I sure as hell don't expect to agree with you on everything that we talk about and, uh, and some of the folks that we do have on the show. But that's what makes this show, I believe, really good. And that is because, hey. It's always the way you look at a problem. Yeah. So you look at a problem as from the pilot's point of view. I look at the problem from a mechanic's point of view, right? And we're looking at the same problem, but certain facts will jump out at me and I, I'm ready to impeach an individual maybe or a system because of what comes out of it. You remember everybody that an accident is a, a whole bunch of events that come together. So the chain of events in an accident isn't always linear. It yep. may come in two different directions at the same time. And that's why you get difference, differences of opinion for people that, that are looking at it through a different, uh, what they call it, colored glasses. Not trying, to, not trying to, uh, to steer the investigation anyway. It's just the way they're looking at it. And at the end of the day, maybe you want two or three of those different opinions and then you sit down and try to determine exactly what the main reasons were for the, for the event to have occurred, right? But it's all part of it. And I have in the queue several accidents uh, that we're gonna pick apart. And they came from, uh, from our listeners. Yeah. Trying and to, and, and to you bring up a good point, John, real quick. And that is, you know, yeah, we can take the same facts and, and that was the beauty of the party system and still is the beauty of the party system that the NTSB uses and we use here in the United States, if it's used properly. I always appreciated the party system. I didn't mind ALPA being a party. I don't mind the fact that we have the manufacturer as a party or the FAA or an engine manufacturer or someone else. Why? Because when you look at the same facts, you get a different interpretation. So ALPA would interpret those facts differently than the manufacturer of the engine or the manufacturer of the airframe or the FAA or whatever. That was great for me as an investigator at the NTSB because I'm the neutral party. I have to look at those facts, conditions, and circumstances. I wanna see how everybody else in the world sees those facts, conditions, and circumstances, but make sure that we have all the necessary facts, conditions, and circumstances to support what those facts are telling us, in what direction this probable cause is gonna go. It is, it is based on the preponderance of evidence. The best available information is what's going to develop and support the best available probable cause. And that's why, yeah, it's a system, a natural system of checks and balances. But when you have systems like in Indonesia and other places where, yeah, you have people that are contributing or organizations that are contributing that are then selectively filtered out for political purposes or whatever, that is not accident investigation. And that sure as hell is not enhancing aviation safety in any way, shape or form. You know, and, we, were lucky, we were very lucky with the Indonesian event because the investigators were able to keep the raw data in the report. Yeah. They didn't drop any of the raw data. So it was clear that the investigation was done in a competent way, but the but when it went back behind closed doors to, to make the probable cause that it really was influenced by politics. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, we want to end this show because this is our last show of the year. And uh, we're excited because the first show of next year is going to be number 100. So again, we want to thank you, the listeners and the viewers for uh, giving us uh, you know, what we believe is success in, in this podcast, um, providing your feedback, 
uh, good, bad, and indifferent. And, and we look at it all. I mean, we want to try and get better. We want to try to appeal to you, the listener. Uh, you've told us that we, you know, you like hearing us dissect accidents and we intend to do that. But I, I always want to keep this show a little diverse. I want to hit, uh, hit subjects. And, and John and I are always trying to hit subjects that touch on safety. That's why we've been going to the universities uh, like Embry-Riddle so that we can get a different perspective and appeal to the younger people that we've always talked about trying to promote aviation as a career, trying to keep people involved, especially young people. Um, we know that there's gonna be a hiring boom across the board for air traffic controllers, maintenance technicians, pilots. That's a given because aviation by its very nature is very dynamic and there is a turnover. But now we're getting into space, commercial space. That too is the next frontier, if you will, for, uh, for young people. So we, we try to keep the show diverse. We wanna be positive and promote, but we also wanna be lessons learned by the dissection of these accidents, giving you the backstories, giving you the things you aren't gonna read in a report uh, or see on a TV uh, show um, that's on, on, the, on cable or whatever. The fact is, is that this is what we try to do and what we want to bring. And we appreciate you giving us that feedback and those suggestions so that we can appeal more to what you want to see. So you just had a, uh, uh, well, we've had a number of SpaceX launches, not the, not the one that just went, but one or two back. Uh, they were closing up the, the picture, the, the, the fixed camera on the, on the tower was looking at the at the capsule and the, the person who came into view to close the, the hatch, the final person to, and close and check the hatch was someone who competed in my maintenance skills competition two years ago. Wow. That's awesome. It was awesome, it was wonderful to see. That's great. See, I mean, those are the th those are the kinds of things. And we want to recognize people like that. We intend to, uh, to not only have more guests on the show uh, coming into this new year. Um, but again, we want to recognize you because you all have provided us some great feedback and, and we will continue to hope that you will do that through the website, flightsafetydetectives.com. Um, you can always contact John and I directly through flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. And then of course, listen to us, give us a good rating on uh, whatever um, service you're using for your podcast and definitely on YouTube as well. Um, because again, we're trying to take this to the next level and, and really bring you some educational programs so that you walk away with something that you've learned. I've always preached it when I give speeches and that is I can tell you story after story after story for hours on end. And if all I did was talk and all you got out of it was that was a cool story, but you didn't learn anything, then I wasn't a good communicator. And that is the purpose of this show is for us, John, myself, Todd, and some of the other friends of the show to communicate to you those lessons learned so that you can always park them on your hard drive right back here. Because when you need them the most, you'll remember something that could be the difference between life and death minor event versus a serious event. So with John, with that, I'm going to uh, turn it back over to you because as I always do, and I always will, I will let you take us out with our sponsors and then give you the last words. Okay, so folks, I'd like to remind you all that uh, this show is brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association. If you've got any maintenance issues, questions, want to be a mechanic, just log on. PAMA.org. And the show was also sponsored by Avemco Insurance, the premier general aviation insurance company. Truly, truly, I know I say it every time, but I really believe it. Truly, truly, a very professional crew, very knowledgeable crew. They'll talk airplanes with the best of you and, uh, and talk insurance with anybody in the world. They focus on general aviation insurance. That's all they insure. So if you need any kind of hull insurance, CFI insurance, any kind of general aviation insurance, give them a call at 888-879-0389 or avemco.com. Really, you really should take advantage of it. And like Greg said, keep the emails coming. 
I go through every single one of them. They've been, they've been the setup for many of the shows that we've had. Many of the accidents we talk about come from our listeners. So, I mean, and we, I got, I have got more than we can handle right now, actually, but we'll handle every one of them. We're going to take them down the line in our new format next year. We might be able to do more. Yeah. And Florida, Jimmy, expect your Christmas gift. <laughs> yes. Yes. And as I say at the end of every show, please, please think of your family, think of your friends, think of the investigators who have to come out to the accident scene. They get emotional too, right? Before you leave homes, do a good basic pre-planning your flight. When you get to the facility that you're leaving from, do a thorough weather assessment. Plan A, plan B, plan C, whatever, how many it takes before you go, go on. File your VFR or IFI plan. And then do a real pre-flight. If you don't know how to do it, get a mechanic that's there, tell them or ask them to show you what the important things are to look at before you go anywhere and do it. Don't just, you know, do it once and then say, oh, I flew it yesterday. You'll be all right. I didn't touch anything. Got to do it every single time before you take off. And please, please, once you do take off, fly safely. Keep your eyes open. Keep your head on a swivel, right? Know what's going on around you. Use all the electronic tools that you have. There's a lot of them today to help. And the weather that's available today on your iPad is unbelievable. You know, so if you're taking off in a place that's good, you can have good information for the weather en route. And you can dodge that weather long before you get to it if, you, if you're conscientious and pay attention. So with that, thank you. Please fly, fly safely and have a very happy holiday season. And stay safe. This virus is, a, you know, all the predictions are that the virus is about to hit with a vengeance. So please play safe. Don't, don't be uh, in large gatherings of people for a couple of weeks. Take care, my friend. Thank you. Happy holidays to you too, Greg. To listen to more episodes of this show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and remember to fly safe.